Happy New Year, and thanks for listening to the Planet LP Podcast. I'm your host, Tess Rodatu. In this episode, we're going back in time to spotlight a group that's had a 50-year career in the music business and has gone through three distinct periods that include solo albums and offshoot musical collaborations. Who is this band? It's Journey. And with me on the podcast is Nick DeRizzo. He is the author of a wonderful book about the band called Journey, Worlds Apart, which was published on December 8th, 2023 by Time Passages Press. I'll put a link to ordering the book in the show notes. So with that, let's get into the world of Journey, shall we? Nick DeRizzo is currently the assistant managing editor at Ultimate Classic Rock, according to his bio on UCR. He has been named columnist of the year five times by the Associated Press, Louisiana Press Association, and Louisiana Sports Writers Association, and previously oversaw a daily newspaper section that was named Top 10 in the Nation by the AP. It's a nice CV there, Nick, and great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for being on. Thanks so much for having me, Ted. Happy to be here to talk a little bit about Journey. Yes, Journey. What made you want to write a book about Journey? How did this come about? Well, you know, it's a band that you can't get away from to a degree. You know, people know Journey songs even if they don't know that they're songs by Journey. And <laughs> That's a good way to put it, yeah. As, as I was going through my career as a music writer, you know, I would intersect with the band long after the point where they were, you know, major hit makers. It just occurred to me that there had never been a book about this band, that there had never been someone who tried to sort of untangle uh, the story of how a, a jam band with roots in uh, the Woodstock era Santana group somehow transformed themselves into arena rockers of the first degree in the 1980s with Steve Perry and then how that came apart and how they put it back together. You know, this is a band that had a platinum record 15 years ago. They did put it back together. So I started, it was a few years, uh, more than 50 interviews uh, over the course of these years, data research at the same time, digging into every lineup, every album, every offshoot band and every tour. It was a very incredible undertaking. The deeper I got into it, the more I felt like that these, these other things, these other projects mattered too, that, that it fed in because, you know, when you talk about, for instance, how the eighties era turned for journey, solo records had something to do with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you get to a, a more comprehensive look back as you, as you go in the book, you know, and and that was my journey too, you know, so to speak, Yeah. Uh, as I got deeper into these solo projects, it became clear to me how important they were to telling Journey's story and how they often had direct impact on the storyline of, of the main band. The, the format of the book itself, I think helps you understand that too. There's a, there's a lot of entry points in Journey Worlds Apart, Uh, The timeline is presented in a very episodic way, which makes it easier for readers to to move in and out of the eras. Along with the exclusive interviews, there's dozens of exclusive never-before-seen photographs, 
and an entire appendix of uh, previously unreleased drawings from Journey's principal album cover artist, Stanley Mouse, along with charts and graphs that sort of explain how these singles and albums rose and fell, and things that put it in perspective in a way that uh, that I hope at least is uh, involving for people who are new to it as much as it is something that fills in the blanks for those who are big fans. Yeah, I felt like it was encyclopedic in the format. Like you can jump in wherever you want within within this book. But I read it from start to finish and did it chronologically because I wanted to see all the very different iterations of the band, the offshoots, the solo projects, how they came together. The interviews were great. You you feature Joel Selvin, who's a music critic, music journalist, I should say, writ large, for the San Francisco Chronicle. At least he used to write for the Chronicle. I don't know if he does anymore. Maybe he was retired, but I used to read his stuff for for decades. So I've I've kind of grown up with Joel Selvin and he's quoted pretty liberally within your book. Same with Matt Wardlaw, who the two of us know through Ultimate Classic Rock and and I know through Pop Dose. So and I see these names and I'm like, hey, I know those guys. So it's kind of nice to see, you know. Um, <laughs> and I think the one person that's the most unbridled that doesn't really hold back is Joel Selvin. He just kind of tells it as it is. He's very, very honest about his take on Steve Perry, about what Journey was doing in its first iteration, even up to now, like where the band is at this point. But I thought maybe we'd pivot and just start at the beginning. So for people who think, oh yeah, Journey, it's Don't Stop Believing, it's Open Arms, it's Faithfully, and you know, that Journey. That's not the journey that started. That okay. first incarnation was so different. Those first three albums, you listen to those albums, you think, that's Journey? So yeah. talk a little bit about the beginning. How did Journey start? You did kind of allude to it that, you know, Woodstock, Santana, but there was a point where Neil Sean and Greg Raleigh were the uh, the founders of of what became Journey, but yeah. they were they were in Santana to begin with. So I'll, I'll let you take it from there. Greg Raleigh was was the vocalist and uh, and uh, keyboardist for the original Santana band, the singer of Black Magic Woman and Noyokomava. Their road manager was Herbie Herbert. Herbie mm-hmm. would be the founding manager of Journey, and Greg Raleigh was their original singer. They had put out their first album, performed at Woodstock, put out their first album, and Santana was at work on Abraxas, their breakout album, which mm-hmm. uh, included Black Magic Woman. Great uh, album. One, Greg Raleigh and, and Michael Shreve, uh, one of their uh, drummers, stumbled upon Neil Sean. Uh, Sean was a teenager at this point. He uh, was he would just go and sit in with bands, sometimes sneaking in to, to, to get into these live music venues. And Shreve and Raleigh uh, just happened upon him. He, he jumped up on stage and they were blown away. And they brought him back to, to the sessions. Raleigh told me that he he just started going by and picking up Neil at school during the day <laughs> because Neil would just be outside the you know playing his guitar. He wasn't in class anyway. Uh, Raleigh said, "Well, if you're just going to be hanging out playing guitar, why don't you come hang out with us?" Yeah, why not? People were filtering in and out of these sessions. One of whom was Eric Clapton, as Santana is working on Abraxas, and Clapton was very impressed with this youngster and started talking to him about going on tour with Derek and the Dominoes. That hmm. recording had been made. The Derek and the Dominoes recording had been made with Dwayne Allman and Dwayne wasn't touring with them. He had gone back to the Allman brothers band and Eric Clapton, as he watched this 
youngster, you know, go through, go through his guitar motions was thinking, you know, maybe this is that second guitarist that would complete our sound on stage. Mm -hmm. And at that point, Carlos Santana sort of sh was shaken awake and went, wait a minute, uh, <laughs> maybe we should bring this guy in, you know, before he's whisked away on tour. And so suddenly Neil Sean is in Santana. They record two albums together and you've got the core of Journey sitting there. I don't know that they would have left, but for Carlos Santana decided, along with Michael Shreve, that they were interested in kind of exploring a jazzier sound, moving away <laughs> from Latin rock. Uh, into something that was more open-ended. I think you described it as meditative, right? It was a sort of this meditative music. Yeah. And, and they Carlos, just weren't down with that. He had gotten into, you know, he'd gotten into diffusion and and that's where he was taking the band. And and Raleigh and and Sean and and Herbie Herbert were were not interested in that. They, right. they thought, right. Herbert thought it was a, a, a tremendous waste of of their talents. Mm -hmm. Um Sean and Raleigh both sort of just drifted out of the band during the sessions for their fourth album. Raleigh actually ended up going up working with his dad in the uh, restaurant business. In That's Seattle. right. He kind of, he almost quit the music business or maybe he was, he was like, okay, this isn't working out. Yeah. And, uh, and he had, he had just given up, uh, you know, after building Santana, you know, it, it, it which became a, you know, a rock and roll hall of fame band, you've got this, this incredible performer who's, you know, uh, got an apron on and uh, is working in the restaurant business very <laughs> unhappily. Herbie's still with Santana. He decides he's had enough and he says, you know, I quit too, but he's got one more date, a date that he always books in Hawaii. And so he puts together a group that is a sort of a journey prototype. It includes Sean and Raleigh along with Pete Sears and Greg Errico, and they play a date on uh, on a New Year's Eve or a New Year's Day, rather. And it just it gives him an idea. He said, you know, he says, what if we could, you know, have a new band? Um, they start out at first. They're just going to be sessions players, I think, mm -hmm. is what he's, is the way he's selling it. Right. But all of a sudden, things are clicking. You know, the, the, he brings in Ross Valerie and and George Tickner, who had been in an, an earlier San Francisco band that Herbie was uh, was associated with. Prairie Prince was then splitting time between the tubes and other gigs, uh, and Herbie was like co-managing the tubes. It was really just Herbie. He just you know he had connections and he and he knew people and. Uh, he put together an early version of the band. Their hope was to just work as a sessions group for whoever came through in San Francisco. And right, right. But things started clicking. They played a couple of dates. People really were reactive to it. And suddenly you had a freestanding band. Prairie Prince ended up going back to, to, to the tubes. They were childhood friends. And they brought in Ainsley Dunbar, who was a, at that point a, you know, a very celebrated drummer. He'd been with Frank Zappa. They put out three records and these records were, and Herbie says this, they, those records were initially in particular simply meant to set up Neil Sean guitar solos. Hmm. They were, they were a jam band. And Greg Raleigh told me, he said, you know, if we had come out with those records in another era, we'd be on tour with fish. You know? <laughs> no, that's uh, a good point. We'd be out, we'd be out in the world with people that really understood it, but that sound it was starting to fade as we get into the 
you have to remember their their first record came out in the mid seventies, mm-hmm. you know, and at that point, rock and roll was moving into a into a more polished era already. So. Yeah, I you think know. that when I listen to those first three Journey albums, it sounds like a holdover from sort of late sixties, early seventies. And that kind of experimentation and that sort of free form, I'm like, God, oh, these guys are sound a little bit trapped in the past. It's not that the the albums are bad in any way. As I listen to them, I'm a bit of a fan of that era of Journey because it's so different. It's not that polished commercial corporate rock as it derisively is known later. But it's a, it's an interesting dive if you go back and you listen to that. And nowadays, if, if you subscribe to any kind of streaming service. All these albums you already own now in a way, or you lease, you rent them so you can hear them. It doesn't cost you anything additional. You don't have to seek out these records, unlike in the pre-digital times. Right. So it's it's there for for folks to to check out. And it it does give a different perspective on journey by how well, how unjourney it sounds, but also how much they are very much wedded to that project that they, I think that they really liked with Santana. The early Santana albums are like, yes, this is what we like. And let's just keep doing a kind of version of that. It's Santana without the percussion, you know, without the Latin influences. Right. right. Um, but stretched out. I mean, I there, there's... You know, there's regularly six, seven, eight minute songs, um, you know, with long instrumental passages. So, I mean, you really have to think about those those first three records as a, as, as its own thing. And the the thing you talk about with Herbie Herbert, he understood that the the music industry was changing, tastes were changing, that the long jam band stuff was fading, as you put it. In 1978, they have to make a decision after three albums that didn't sell very well. You have to ask yourself, what else have we got? <laughs> and and I'm sure the record label asked the very same question too. Like we're putting all this money into you guys making these records, but hardly anyone's buying them. So what right. happens in 1978? Are they given an ultimatum? Yes, yes. Columbia Records said, "Get a front man, or or you're out." And, uh, <laughs> it was very much like that. You know, you think about in another ten years, they wouldn't have even gotten three albums. You know, mm-hmm. I think to a large degree their association with Santana carried them to even that point. You know, Greg Raleigh was and is an incredible singer. Mm-hmm. I love um, his voice. I think he's got a great Neil, voice. But Neil had not yet fully explored, even then, the range of music that was within him. And what unlocked that, surprisingly enough, wasn't what they expected. You know, they they brought in another guy. They brought in uh, someone from the outside, Named Robert Fleischman, uh, and they worked with him for a summer or so. You know, even went on tour with him when they were opening for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Uh, they wrote some songs together. All of a sudden, there was something different going on with the way that Neil approached the songs. I think they finally began to understand that having a front man and someone who who could give them a more polished or or, or pop sound would change them in positive ways, but it wasn't, it was, it wasn't easy for them. You know, it, it they, they ended up uh, having co- some conflicts with Fleischman and, you know, that didn't work out. Herbie had, had heard a, a demo of Steve Perry of a guy that had been bouncing around trying to make it and not having much luck. And so they brought him out on the road when they were still touring with Fleischman. He just kind of hung out with the band mm-hmm. uh, and never, never performed with them though. 
uh, on the road. He was just kind of like there. Well, initially. And, and so they were, you know, they were sort of in backstage and in hotel rooms and all this. And it fully unlocked Neil Sean's creativity, I believe. Hmm. You know, they wrote a song called Patiently, which is on the first album that they have with Perry called Infinity. And it's a completely different song. You know, you've got it, you've got acoustic elements and, and a, and a, and a, a lyricism to both the song and Neil's playing that was quite different. They actually did bring Perry on stage for an encore. They found a you know a way to otherwise distract Robert Fleischman, <laughs> uh, introduced Steve Perry as the cousin of one of the roadies, and had him out on stage. It just at that point they felt like this would work. So the audience um, really reacted positively. Yeah, his and voice and all that. Yeah, it took some time though for them too. You know, there there were some th- who loved you know what they did, in particular around you know the San Francisco area they were quite popular. You mm-hmm. know? It wasn't something that translated, you know, on a national level anymore, but they had their fans and, uh, you know, Perry, uh, you know, once he came on board, had to deal with some negative energy from their, their standing fans, but they quickly made so many new ones that it was overwhelming. They had never sold more than a hundred thousand copies of any record. They hadn't sold 300,000 copies of all of their records. And then their next three albums went triple platinum each. Right. That's amazing. It, there's a, a light that goes off with this band all of a sudden. And, you know, a really nice mix with Perry and Raleigh. You know, that didn't last long. They, you know, Raleigh was only with them for three more albums. But there's a really, really intriguing vocal mix with the two of them because they're such different singers. Mm-hmm. You know, Perry's the romantic and 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 Raleigh's the, uh, you know, is, is more sensual and, and daring. And there's a, a really nice vocal mix there. But they struggled with it at first. They struggled with a way to figure out how to make all these things work. Because, they you know, Raleigh and Sean weren't used to building a song. You know, mm-hmm. they weren't used to, 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 to coming in and, and, and continuing to work on something. They would record like they played. You know, you just plug in. Kind of the jam band thing, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and Herbie brought in, you know, Roy Thomas Baker, who had already developed a, a, a tremendous reputation for these huge productions with Queen. That stacking technique, that vocal stacking technique that they used on the first two records with Perry and Baker became a signature for them suddenly the sound was starting to become more what you would expect. You know, they had a couple of uh, medium-sized hits. You know, people think of uh, Wheel in the Sky, which is one of the songs that uh, they worked on with Robert Fleischman. And people think of Any Way You Want It as being really big hits, but they really weren't. They didn't have a genuine hit until uh, Love and Touch and Squeezing. Herbert's instincts were right. I mean, he was trying to align the band with what he saw were the trends moving in in music. And I look at the years, the the Golden Goose years, 1978 to 1986, where Journey, it seemed like any album they put out would automatically go top 10. People couldn't get enough of them. They were very much a a band of its time. They had hit at the right time in the culture, and people just loved their music. 
And I look at that in terms of how impressive that was in such a short period of time from their beginnings for these three albums that if they sold 300,000 copies, wow, that's a lot. But then they, then suddenly 1978 happens and then for close to a decade, they're able to ride that with such an incredible radio-friendly sound. And even when MTV comes into the mix, it works for MTV as well, but people didn't seem to grow tired of it. In fact, they seem to crave it more. And that's, like I said, I don't want to minimize this, this era of Journey because this is what define their sound going forward with Steve Perry as their front man. Greg Raleigh was certainly their lead vocalist for a time, but then once he made his exit after that live album captured, then it was Steve Perry's show. You know, I mean, he was, he was it. He was the guy. As you point out in your book, there are a lot of people, especially I remember the guy on CNN who was saying, hey, without Steve Perry, there's no journey. And I'm like, well, that's not true. I think for Greg Raleigh, by the time uh, he gets to the 1980s, he's now built two bands. You know, he doesn't have much more to prove. And mm-hmm. he all, but he also doesn't have a family. Greg Raleigh decides that he's ready to park it for a little while. And he kind of looks around and there's a guy in the opening act for that final tour that he does with Journey named Jonathan Kane in the babies. And unbeknownst to, to Raleigh, Kane has been trying to pitch several big ballads to the babies. And John Waite, their front man, is just not interested. Yeah. Uh, Waite is yeah. Waite's more of a uh, of a swashbuckling type uh, mm-hmm. you know, of energy guy. Very, very sharp-witted. And Kane comes in with a demo that's got pieces of what would become open arms on it, and Wait just brushes them off. Doesn't sound like a baby song. I, I, I can't think, imagine John Wait singing open arms. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. This yeah. doesn't fit well, and so and so Raleigh just he, you know he doesn't know that, but he knows from what he's seen that Kane can you know he can play the part. What was interesting about Jonathan Kane too was. He could also play guitar. Uh, you know, George Tickner was an early member of the band, but you know, he left after the first album, and Sean had been playing all of the guitar parts on stage ever since. So there was an idea that that Kane could could provide something on stage that they that they needed as well. I think he brought a lot to the band. If you think about it, not only could he play keyboards and guitar, he could sing. I mean, he's not a lead singer, but he can sing. And then he's also a songwriter. That's four things he brings to the band that maybe others wouldn't. I don't think anyone really knew how that would change Perry. In the same way that Perry changed Neil Sean, Kane changed Steve Perry, because there was a part of Perry that always wanted to do more ballad work. Hmm. And within the current configuration of Journey as it was, which still had its roots in Santana, there just wasn't really a place for that. They would touch on it at times. There were a couple of ballads that were just more of like acoustic type things, but usually very, very short elements of songs more than than songs themselves. Kane comes into the band and Perry and Kane spark to the point where it's hard at first for Sean to kind of find his way back into the songwriting process. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were several other big hits that he really had to work to get into a mindset or to get something from his instrument that he felt like worked with what they were doing. But at the same time, that, that very first album comes out, they were able to pull it off mm-hmm. in ways that I think are, are largely obscured by the success of the records. I don't think people necessarily know how hard it was 
for them to get to a place where these songs were finished. You're talking about the making of Escape, right? Yeah, Escape and Frontiers. You know, <laughs> they're, they're the first two records that they made with Kane. That friction made those songs what they were and made those albums what they were. But as with any kind of friction, there's only so long before a fire breaks out. <laughs> yeah, it, it comes with a cost. One of the things that brought that tension to light was that VH1 documentary behind the music that they did on Journey. Now, granted, this was this was far beyond the, the 80s. This came out like, what, 2001 or so. Yeah. But it does encapsulate a lot of that fraying that was going on, mostly as Steve Perry sort of ascended to being the boss man and sort of calling the shots. You get to the point where Steve Perry's personality as a person who's very domineering at times, cutting, at one point reduced Jonathan Cain to tears by minimizing his role within the band in front of some industry people. I thought, wow, this guy really is kind of a jerk. And then you get the cherry on top, which is what he said on VH1's Behind the Music. I'm going to play a little bit from that episode. I never really felt like I was part of the band. I know I know that's um, difficult to see or even difficult to say, but <clears throat> I really always felt that I was the, uh, an out, the outside guy. I just... Don't know how to how to relate to that. I have no idea why he would feel that way. <laughs> what can I say to you? It's just nuts. Never felt part of the band. Okay. He was making you know a lot of the decisions and doing basically whatever he wanted to do. So I don't know how you could not feel a part of something that you're almost completely controlling. If anything, it was pro Steve. It was pretty much he had the reins. So here's the guy with the reins saying, I'm not a member of the band. What's up with that? Somebody tell me. (laughs) I don't get it either. It's weird to hear that reaction, or at least that view that Steve Perry had of being sort of the the loner, the, I was never part of this group. You guys never made me feel part of this. And then his bandmates and his manager are like, what are you, crazy? You were basically running the show. How could you not feel part of this band? Why he would say something like that, I think some of it has to do with the tensions in the band at that point of wanting to tour and his hip issue that needed to get hip replacement surgery and he didn't want to do it. And then he got very angry at the fact that they're like, hey man, we're waiting over a year for you to make this decision about what you want to do. And he doesn't want to do the surgery. He doesn't want to have pressure from the band. So personalities start colliding. And if you're talking about that tension that occurs at that sort of conflict that that sparks these great songs, but then it frays over time. Boy, it really comes to a head there. You know, the 80s were marked by by solo projects. Everyone began to drift. Neil Sean had already put out two solo records before Perry did. And Perry was very adamant that he didn't want to do solo projects. He felt like that it would harm the band. But, you know, Steve Smith, their drummer who replaced Ainsley Dunbar, had come out of a jazz background. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted yeah. to restart that part of his career. Yeah, he was, uh, he was like drumming for like Jean-Luc Ponty and stuff. I mean, that's not yeah. the music and, and, to so. <laughs> and Neil, you know, Neil had struck up a musical conversation with Jan Hammer. And uh, at some point, Perry felt compelled to do his own thing. In particular, when the second Sean and Hammer record kind of ended up with a video on MTV, you know? I mean, it wasn't a big hit, but it was right. it was within the realm of, of Journey. You know, that's 
song Lies? Was that, was that the song Lies? Yeah. Like they go through this period where everyone's doing solo projects, but of course, Steve Perry's becomes a huge platinum hit. He's Steve Perry. Sure. So when they come back together, Perry's in a different place. Mm-hmm. He's run every part of that of those sessions. He selected every player. He wrote every song or co-wrote every, you know. I picked his co-writers who we wanted to collaborate with, you know, producers, was involved with every element of the video, everything. He came back a different person. You know, he'd always been a perfectionist, but at this point he was like, well, I think I know what I want to do now. To speak to to your point, though, about him feeling not being part of the band, this runs in a parallel fashion. Yes, you can say all of those things because by the end of that next album, those next album sessions, he's fired Steve Smith. He's fired Ross Valerie. Who he's taking over uh, producing duties. Raised on Radio was as much a, a Steve Perry and Friends record as it was a Journey record. So you mm-hmm. say to yourself, "Well, how in the world does he not feel like he's a member of the band?" But you know, Steve Perry always felt things very deeply. Um, his parents divorced when he was quite young. And he's and, an only child, right? And he's an only child, and he spent a lot of time a loner. I mean, he really did. Music was his salvation. He would listen to music. Uh, it helped him understand his feelings. And there was a, there was a form of expression in listening to music and then in making it. He had never really given himself to anybody besides his mother. They were very, very close. He was not married. You know, he didn't have a family. He came into Journey. It was already fully formed as far, you know, as far as the band had been together. So I can, uh, I can see that. He, he kind of feels like the new guy. And-, and he never quite got over that, even though he was quite close with them, you know, in terms of songwriting and touring and all. Everyone sort of knows about Sherry Swafford, his girlfriend at the time in the 80s because of the hit song that he wrote for, you know, but he traveled with her separately. He would tend to wall himself off from people. That was his doing as well. So there's sort of parallel things going. I think that what Steve meant based on his his own clarifications uh, was that he just didn't feel like a part of necessarily a brotherhood more than the band. Yes, he, of course, was running things by the end of the 80s because he was the biggest star in the group. Mm-hmm. But for Perry, it was very hard you know, to truly give himself to to others. And, and, he, and we really didn't until... Uh, until far more recently when he fell in love with uh, with Kelly Nash. And that changed him. If you look at the Steve Perry of today, he's a changed person. He found love and he found a way to be the person that many of his songs always portrayed him to be. One of the arcs of the book is how Steve Perry changes. The Steve Perry of the Raised on Radio era and the Trial by Fire era, which is when he injured his hip and, and didn't want to to immediately have surgery in order to tour is a far different person than the Steve Perry of, of traces and uh, his Christmas album. So I have, I have a question, but it comes with a bit of a backstory. So bear with me here. So we're going to go back to the raised on radio period. I've lived in this where I live now for 25 years now. So one of my neighbors was a musician. Well, he when he lived here, he was he was in a band. He was a musician. He was pretty connected with the local music scene. He knew a lot of people in the industry, and he knew I was a Rush fan. And he said, "Hey, I got a story for you." And I said, "All right." He said, "My buddy used to work at uh, the plant, and one day he calls me up and he goes, 
hey, you're never going to guess who's here working on a Journey album. I said, who? Neil Peart. He's, he's drumming. He's, he's in the studio right now, like auditioning for Journey. And it's like, I'm all like, that's not true. Come on. I said, that, he goes, no, 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 no. My friend was like, I shit you not. He is here right now. And he says, do you know what Steve Perry told Neil Peart after they they ran through one of the songs? I said, what? And he goes, yeah, I know about your drumming, but you don't really have any rhythm. So <laughs> I told my neighbor, I said, I don't mean to call your, your friend a liar, but Rush was doing its own thing at that point. I said, why would Neil Peart audition for Journey? You know, I, I understood that now from reading your book that Steve Perry had kind of engineered, you know, the exit of, of Steve Smith. And I know that Smith and Peart were friends. So I thought maybe there was something on like a phone call got made. said, so why don't you go down there and maybe you could, you know, work on some of their songs or something like that. But I just thought it could be apocryphal. I don't know, but I'm asking you. Any truth to that? <laughs> I haven't heard the, the quote or that Neil was there, but uh, it's not surprising to me that there are so many rumors about it because literally they auditioned drummers forever. Mm, uh, okay. Uh, you know, there were so many people who came in that at some point it just became comical when they, you know, when they settled on on Mike Baird, he had already come in and auditioned once. And then, you know, they, they circled back around to him. The record itself raised on radio was principally performed by rhythm section members who, from street talk, but those guys were more sessions people than they were touring Mm -hmm. uh, guys. And, uh, it took them forever to the, to the point of distraction, you know, and that was, you know, that was during Perry's uh, perfectionist era. He heard something in his mind that he just could not find. To be honest with you, I I don't think that Mike Baird was the answer either. I mean, he toured with him and he never played with him again. It just, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He, I don't know that Steve Perry could have found what he wanted in that moment because it, it was something known only to him. <laughs> okay. So we, as we get to the post-Perry years, we see a band that's moved on from their Golden Goose lead singer from 2001 onward. And they've cycled through a couple of lead singers. Uh, One was Diva Jerry. And then now Arnell Panetta, who's been with the band for, I think, around 17 years at this point. And they both understand their roles, or they they did at the time, and certainly Steve or Jerry did, that my job is to sound just like Steve Perry and to sing these songs like them. So when the fans hear separate ways or open arms, they're like, this is great. I totally accept this. And Arnell's in the same boat. And I think that the one thing that I've noticed about this band is just the sheer stamina from 2001 onward to today. They really haven't given up. They just, they still tour. They'll still put out an album every now and then. They know that it's more of a I guess an indulgence because it's the touring that's going to, it's going to bring in the money. No one plays on the radio. That is the latest journey album or the one prior to that, you know, they're just not doing it because they don't hear those kind of hits, even though there's the singer sounds very much like Steve Perry at times. So how do you assess this post Perry period? What we're in now uh, with Arnell as the front man and, and you certainly got Jonathan Kane still in the group, and you have Neil Schoen, but uh, Steve Smith is gone, Ross Valerie's gone, and who are they now? 
we're in an era of rock that's that's all new. When you get to a point where second generation classic rock bands like Journey are in their 50th year, you know, this is uncharted territory. How do we look at it? Well, it's I think that that for bands like Journey or mm-hmm. Foreigner these tours are about bringing this music to new ears more than they are even fan service of, of people who bought the original records. Right. Right. I think, I think the idea in their mind, if we, if we leave aside the financials, I think that the idea is what they'd like to do is to look out there and see people who are just discovering this music. When you talk about a band that played its first show 50 years ago, you know, there's a lot of new ears. <laughs> you know, definitely, yeah. There's a lot of new ears to hear this music. So that's interesting that you say that because I I look at these tours more as nostalgia, but it is in that you know you're going to get the grandparents, the parents, and the kids probably going to the same show, but the kids are going to hear these songs live for the first time. That may spark a new sense of fandom for them. They may say, "I really like Journey," or "I really like the Stones," or "I really like Foreigner." Because I got to see them live. I know it's not the exact same band, but boy, they sure sounded like it. Knowing that Steve Perry isn't going to tour because of the wear and tear on his voice from all those years, you know, there's also a sense of, well, this is this is not everyone, uh, but this is all there is. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. and as bands come off the road, uh, you know, as we have these farewell tours, as we, you know, as we lose these these very famous people that have been such an intimate part of our lives through the radio, you know, maybe that's enough for people too. you know, just to say, well, this is what's left, you know, and I'd like to hear him one more time, even if it's only the one guy from back in the seventies. Yeah, exactly. The one guy. So as we conclude, let me ask you this final question. As you were researching and writing this book, What's the one thing that surprised you most about this band, about Journey? I think it goes back to what we were talking about with conflict there. It's interesting to me to examine how the characters change. You have sort of the rise and fall of different people who seem to be uh, in control of things or seeking control. You have the rise and fall of people who appear to be, uh, for lack of a better word, the villain of the story in certain chapters. And these things kind of come and go. There are ruptures, and then it somehow finds a way to repair itself. And it just is interesting to me to see even a, even a figure like Steve Perry, who was basically taking over the band, serving as producer, you know, handpicking the musicians just as if it was a solo record, refusing to, you know to tour or to even go back in the studio after the trial by fire reunion was derailed by his injury. I think all of the characters in this book have those kind of arcs, you know, and some of them are not as hopeful. Some of them uh, <laughs> are still unwritten. The endings are unwritten, mm-hmm. you know? but I found it very interesting to me, the way that the, the black hat sort of shifted uh, chapter by chapter. There are questions to be asked of, of all the major characters in this book. There are times when, when you question <laughs> their motives or their <laughs> ideas. It's interesting to me. And I think it always has been as a journalist to kind of peek behind the curtain and see who these people reveal themselves to be, who you've heard singing and playing all these years. I feel like I got to know them better over this you know, period of time, but I was constantly surprised by the way that, that over a period of decades, these people would change. They're complicated people. And, uh, <laughs> That's a good way to far, put it. Yeah. 
you know, far more than, than, than what you might think from listening to their biggest songs. I hope the book captures that. The book is Journey, Worlds Apart, and the author is Nick DeRizzo. You can order the book through Amazon or just have your local bookstore order it from the publisher and pick it up there. It's a terrific read. And Nick, you've been a terrific guest. Thanks for being on the Planet LP podcast. Thanks so much, Ted. And that's it for this episode. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Planet LP. Follow Planet LP on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. To get in touch with me via email, I'm at ted at planetlp.com. Back soon to talk more about music right here on the Planet LP podcast.